So good morning, everybody. My name is Stuart Sadler, and um, I'm a trainee curate here, um, due to be ordained in July. So exciting times, only eight weeks' time. Um, but I just want to start by saying, have you ever met somebody who, you, who just really seems to be sorted, who just seems so content, happy, at ease with him or herself, who's obviously filled with joy, and because of that, is so attractive. You just want to spend time with them. You want to just listen to them and enjoy their enjoyment of life. Well, I think, actually, this is what we've got with John, this gem of John's letters. By God's providence, we have these three letters in the New Testament. Now, he must, most likely, when he wrote this, he must have been already in his 80s. And imagine in that early church, getting a chance to talk with John, a man who got to be with Jesus for three years, listening, learning, witnessing, and contemplating of all he said. And this is what we are going to do over the next 10 weeks or so, sitting and listening to this wise, joyous, humble man, John, a man who's seen it all, the life and teaching of Christ, his death and resurrection, that Pentecost morning where so many became believers, the rapid growth of church in numbers and spread as it moved west and east and grew in depth and number in Jerusalem. He saw the early church struggle to agree on the meaning of what Jesus said of how they should be structured and how they should fit in with Jewish, Greek, and Roman society. And also had seen the growth in resistance and even persecution of Christians. He would have had and seen fellow believers struggle with what it means in life to follow Jesus. Here in this passage, he shares with us what he has heard from Jesus himself. John tells us at the beginning of our passage today, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. Then follows this wise man's words on who God is and how we can avoid the barriers we can put up between us and him. By rejecting God and following our own selfish desires, that we know in our heart of hearts is not good for ourselves or others, what John calls sin. With its destructive power in our lives, John's heartfelt desire for each one of us this morning is stated in that first verse of chapter 2. My dear children, I write this to you that you will not sin. As we go through the passage, you might find it helpful to keep your Bibles open on page 1,225. Also, I've included a handout in your notice sheet which gives you the um, approximate structure of my talk this morning. So John starts by revealing what Jesus Jesus himself taught him. That being, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. This clearly sets out for us from the beginning the standard that we need to meet. This is really the anchor point of the whole passage. This is who God is. He is light. And it's worth us just pausing for a moment and dwelling on this. God is light. 
in him there is no darkness at all. God is light. Light is pure. Light illuminates. Light shows the way. Showing that God is pure and holy. And that he reveals what is hidden and guides us. But also, light cannot exist with darkness. It's just impossible. There is light or darkness. They cannot be both at the same time. If God is light, he isn't darkness. John goes further, saying absolutely that there is no darkness in God at all. God is pure light and cannot accept darkness. And if we are in him, we too cannot accept darkness. Now, on Friday this week, I was honored to have an amazing conversation with a Muslim friend at work. We had a chance, somehow, uh, to sit down and spend some time talking about the fundamentals of our beliefs for about an hour uninterrupted in a meeting room in the office, speaking in turn of our understanding of God, Jesus, Muhammad, death, the afterlife, judgment day, and beyond. We covered quite a lot of the, the ground. My friend gracefully and patiently explained each key aspect of Islamic theology and then allowed me to question further that aspect and then we switched roles. I had the chance to explain the beauty and the grace of Jesus dying on the cross for each one of us. We spoke about the criteria for forgiveness. He explained that Muslims believe that on the judgment day, God would weigh up each person's good deeds and bad deeds and the intent behind them. And that, with this assessment, a judgment would be made of whether that person will or won't be allowed into heaven. This, I think, is how many, not just those of the Muslim faith, instinctively think of how it will be when we are judged by God when we die. That the good things we have done will be weighed up against the bad. And as long as we've done more good than bad, we should be okay, fingers crossed. So I have bad news for you about this, but also some very good news. Christians, too, believe that when we die, there will be this weighing up of our actions in this life. But the bad news is that when this happens, we know how this will turn out. What we've done in this life will never be good enough. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And with this in mind, goes on in Romans 6 to say, and the wages of sin is death. By our own merits, we don't stand, literally, a cat in hell's chance of being considered worthy enough for eternal life with God. So this is the standard by which we're going to be measured. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And if there is any darkness in us, or ever has been, then the wages of sin are death. James, the brother of Jesus, highlighted this in his letter, chapter 2. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. James is basically saying that getting 99% in our exam paper at the end of time is still a fail. 
anything below perfect is a fail. Earlier in John's Gospel, he retells us of an incident when Jesus challenged the crowds who were about to stone a woman for adultery. He said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Slowly, one by one, all those in the crowd left, without a stone being thrown. No one claimed to be without sin. We have, in fact, all of us sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if we've ever sinned, then there is no hope if we are to be judged by our own deeds and intent. Now, don't worry, I am not finishing now. (laughs) Um, Because there is some very, very good news. God made a wonderful, wonderful rescue plan. By Jesus' death on the cross, then the wages of sin have been paid for every one of us. By Jesus' graceful gift of himself, he paid for our sin. And as John put it in our passage today in verse 5 and 9, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us all from all sin. And so if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So the great news is that, yes, we are sinners, but we follow a savior who loved and continues to love us, so much so that he even died for us, paying the wages of our sin for us. Now, if you'd like to know more about this God, this God who pays our sins for our sins, then do have a chat with somebody today, if you'd like, either Richard or myself, or somebody from the prayer ministry team. Or think about coming on the next Alpha course. So, should we go on sinning? As Paul so often says in his letters to the Romans, and I love this when Paul writes in Romans, by no means. And this is what John the Elder then tackles head-on in our passage as he looks at three traps, three errors that we can fall into in the understanding of sin in our lives. You see these in verse 6, 8, and 10. When John starts three sentences with, if we claim to. The first of these in verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sins. Here, bluntly, John starts by saying, we cannot be two-faced. We cannot be Sunday Christians if we aren't Monday morning to Saturday night Christians too. There isn't any part of our life that God, first of all, doesn't know about, and secondly, that there isn't a time in the week where God isn't passionate about us knowing him and him knowing us. Walking in the light 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. So what does this life look like in real, for real? Well, sometimes in life we just assume that there are areas of our life where God has no relevance Maybe we haven't even thought about God's relevance in some parts of our weekly uh, schedule. A couple of years ago in in our home group, we were talking about this, and a lovely young guy 
who worked in the city couldn't see any way of him expressing his faith or even in the relevance of God Monday to Friday. For so many of us who work, though, I think the opposite is true. We spend more waking hours with our colleagues at work than even with our spouses. And at work, we are tested and we can show God's love in how we work with people, manage people, handle stressful situations together, handle social situations, and large life events like redundancies or how we support other colleagues through illness and bereavement. As a Christian in the workplace, we may be the only Christians that other people meet in their whole lives. We are called to love our neighbors, and I certainly think this applies to the chap who sits next to you at work. Alternatively, it could be that there are areas of our life that we feel are just too trivial to bother God about. For example, how do we engage with the news? As we watch or read, are we engaging with issues in a critical way? Are we questioning what we're hearing rather than simply being persuaded to think with the same biases of the journalist or the columnist? As a Christian, I think a good way of approaching these issues is to ask ourselves, where is God in all of this as we listen to those issues? I also don't want to say that everything has to be deep and serious. I think God, who created the Sabbath for all of us, understands and knows we need to rest, be with friends, laugh, sleep, enjoy food and drink. And for these times, we should praise him, thanking him for that wonderful time with an old friend, maybe just me, but that delicious, smooth piece of chocolate, or a great glass of red wine. Praise goes to him for those things too. However, maybe most sadly, there may be parts of our lives where we have struggled with sin for a long time, and essentially, we've given up trying, and even regretfully just accepted for that area, we are always going to just have to live with it. Old wise John, in our passage, is saying, Please don't do that. Keep trying. Don't give up. Walk in the light. Again, if you'd like to talk about any area that's touched you in this passage, then do talk to Richard or myself after the service in confidence. Or if you'd like to talk or pray with somebody from the prayer team, then they too would love to uh, be there for you. The important thing John wants us to know is that we shouldn't miss out on thinking that God actually cares for every part of our lives. There is no no no-go area for God. So let's not compartmentalize our lives. Give it all over to him. You won't regret it. The second error is in verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Here, John is touching on a wrong way of thinking that was prevalent at his time, but also is now. That being that maybe after we become Christians, uh, we sort of expect our lives to have no sin in us. However, soon after becoming Christians, we all learn that sometimes we do sin. And John assumes this in chapter 2, verse 2, 
when he says, but if someone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ. However, in error, one way of coping with this sin in a believer's life, rather than turning to Jesus, is just to deny that it has happened. By doing this, John says we are deceiving ourselves. God knows that we have sinned as he is all-knowing, and yet we still try to deceive ourselves. What value is a relationship unless it's based on trust? This goes for our relationship with God too. If we struggle with a sin, then our all-knowing Father knows it already. So why do we pretend it didn't happen? Why don't we throw ourselves at his feet and just open up to him, our loving Father? If you are in any doubt that this isn't what we should do, just read some of the great Psalms. See how David and others poured out their hearts to God in the most honest, blunt ways. Friends, let's be honest with ourselves. What do you do when you find yourself being proud or being hypercritical of someone else or gossiping or being unkind in what we say about others or being impatient or reveling in anger? At these times, do you let these feelings continue, even enjoying them, or do we stop ourselves This is the time to come to God in prayer, seeking his help, his forgiveness, and restoration. I know these are areas that I have problems with. What I find helps is praying that I can see the person I am finding so infuriating in the way that God sees them, as loved, made in his image. I also pray that I can be less self-centered, and acknowledge that I have no idea of what pressures or distresses may have caused that person to act in the way that has annoyed me so much. Now, Simon Weil, a French Christian philosopher, had a great suggestion here for issues like this. She suggested that at times like this, we should just pause and let our natural, instinctive reactions subside. I know this is really hard and takes real control. But this pause, if we don't just instantly react, allows the Holy Spirit space to speak, to prompt us, to guide us. This has really helped me, and I hope it helps you. The third error comes in verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. If we claim to not have sinned ever, the whole gospel unravels. If we never sinned, we do not need Jesus' sacrifice, as there would be no sin to pay for. This is clearly denying, as we have seen, the central plank of God's message of good news to and for us. As we saw earlier, God inspired Paul to write to the church in Rome, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so this is why John uses such harsh language in our passage. If we are saying we haven't sinned, then we are making God out to be a liar. As he says, all have sinned. But this is exactly what our modern society says. Even the term sin sounds old-fashioned to many, 
and an anathema to others. With such popular philosophies as, as long as an, indiv an individual, an individual should be allowed to do whatever they like, as long as it doesn't impinge on another rights, then another person's right to do whatever they like. Or maybe less highbrow philosophies like the messaging we get from advertising, such as the L'Oreal advert, which advises that you can have whatever you want because you're worth it. This is just one advert, as one small example, that says it's good to desire and then have exactly what you want. Of course, doing everything we want can, and I think we all know, does hurt us as individuals. And so often our actions that we think might just affect ourselves do affect our relationships. Things we do in private affect how we live life in public. Whether sin is recognized as sin by society or not, these things still limit our relationships with other people and our relationship with God. So we have seen these three possible errors in how we might think of sin. First, thinking we can keep part of our lives separate from God. Secondly, denying that as believers, sin is still an issue for us. Thirdly, refuting that sin even exists. The answer for all of this is to turn towards God rather than away from him seeking his forgiveness with blunt honesty, his forgiveness that is freely available, whether we're asking for the first time or the 300th time. And this is the answer for each one of us and the whole world. Well, in this first letter of John that we are so fortunate to have, there are actually two statements that begin, God is. We've just done God is light in this passage. But the other one is towards the end of John's letter in chapter 4, where John writes, God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we may live through him. This is love, that we have loved, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God is light and love. He reveals to us with his light our sinfulness because he loves us, because he loves us intimately and longs for us to know and be able to have as close a relationship with him as possible without sin getting in the way. Gently, as a loving father, he reveals to us our sin solely because he loves us. And this is my prayer for all of us this morning, that we can trust him more and hand over all of our sin and troubles to him to minister to us, caring, teaching, and healing us. So in a moment, we're going to have an opportunity to recognize the sin in our lives as Richard leads us and turn back to him and receive his free gift of forgiveness.